Benjamin Franklin once said that there are two things that are certain, death and taxes. Congratulations. Um, as, as to dying, three people die every second, 180 every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour. George Bernard Shaw said the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. Uh, yes, death is factual. I can also tell you that both the cost of living and the cost of dying are steadily increasing. That said, living remains more expensive than dying, but I think that people are willing to pay that extra cost, if you will. In the spirit of a Jack McAllister joke, a mortuary in North Carolina was called to conduct the funeral for the author of the song, Hokey Pokey. And as they put the body in the coffin, they encountered a serious problem. Jack, you probably know what it is. As they put one foot in, he kept putting one foot out. Um, I, I suppose if we could keep our feet out of the grave, so to speak, we would do it. Um, that is because death, while it's factual, it's also foreign to us. Um, the, the fact of death carries with it sorrow. Leighton Ford, on the death of his 21-year-old son, said, when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. Even Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 35. If that's on the trivia, the shortest verse of the Bible, John 11:35, 35, Jesus wept. A question surrounding Jesus in John 11 is whether or not Jesus wept for Lazarus as the loss of a friend or whether he wept because of those who were bereaved over Lazarus' passing. I think it's the latter. Without question, Jesus loved Lazarus, but before returning to Bethany, he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him from his sleep. Since Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die and that he would raise Lazarus from the tomb, I don't think that it's likely Jesus was weeping over the fact that he had died. I think instead it seems more likely that he was weeping because death is not natural to us. God's intent was never that we would mourn loss. The foreignness of death comes as a result of sin entering the world. Several years ago, my family went to see my wife's brother and his family in Ireland. And so we were driving through the countryside of Ireland and um, we passed by a really old church with a very old cemetery. And I thought it was somewhat eccentric. And so I pointed it out and Chamblin, my almost six-year-old at the time, 
said, Dad, why do they put bodies in the ground? Now, a lesson to be learned from this is, you know, if you want to draw your child's attention to something, be prepared to answer a hard question. And at the center of that conversation was the question, Daddy, what happens to us after we die? Try explaining that to a five-year-old or try explaining that to anyone for that matter. If you're anything like me, I'm sure there are times in which you have sat alone in your thoughts pondering what happens after I die. Not that I question Christ's death and resurrection, but I cannot answer all the questions about death because, well, who in here can tell me about it? It's foreign and it's factual. In the day of Paul, when he was writing to the church in Thessalonian, the, the Thessalonians were asking a question really about the factuality and foreignness of death. And it had caused some fear to set in their hearts. Their question of what happens to loved ones when they die really kind of hid a more personal question, I think, of what will happen to me? And so Paul sets out to answer those questions in his letters to the Thessalonians. Today, as we continue in our series of 66 books, 66 messages, we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. This is God's word to his people. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You can say that this is um, Paul's teaching on end times, or what we call the doctrine of last things. He continues that teaching in his second letter, which we will continue next week as well. But it does not come without its share of debate. You see that there is a question as to how and when Christ will return for his bride. It's, it's a word that's called rapture. Um, and so the question is, is at what point will Jesus suddenly seize his bride from the earth? And some theologians contend that no rapture will take place. Some theologians contend that one rapture will take place. 
And then there are yet others who argue that multiple raptures will occur, beginning with a secret pre-tribulation rapture where the Lord carries away his believers prior to the seven-year period of tribulation. Which view is correct? Dale, I'm going to ask you to come up and explain this to everyone. Um, I, I support a single rapture perspective that takes place post-tribulation. Now, I want you to understand I am not dogmatic in that perspective, and there are many godly men and women who hold to different points of view. But I just want to share with you my perspective because Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus says that things will become so bad that if possible, even the elect of God would turn away. Now, Christ there is either referencing the end times or he is referencing the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So different points of view exist on that, but no matter how you interpret verse 24, I don't believe you can argue against the fact that Jesus says in verse 29 that his glorious return will occur immediately after the tribulation. In verse 30, Jesus then reveals that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky coming on the clouds in power and glory. And then in verse 31, he speaks of his angels, a great trumpet, and the gathering together of his church. It seems that Paul's teaching is parallel to that of Christ. So the events described in 1 Thessalonians 4 would happen post-tribulation. Furthermore, the language of with a shout, with the voice, and with the trumpet does not align itself with the thought in my mind of a secret rapture. And I cannot locate anywhere in the scriptural text speaking of an invisible return of Christ to snatch people away invisibly. That's not the point of Matthew 24, 40 to 41, and it certainly does not coalesce with Acts 1, verse 11. But the fact of the matter is, even as scholars debate these issues, Paul's point is not to write in order to answer academic questions. It's not to answer the question as to when the rapture will take place. Paul's eschatology is not meant to stir up theological debate, but it's meant to settle fearful hearts about the factuality and the foreignness of our human mortality. As a pastor, I can tell you I have never been at a graveside with people who have looked at me and said, can you tell me when the rapture is going to take place? Rather, they have wanted to be comforted as to when they might be reunited with their loved one. As a pastor, I've never been in a hospital room with someone who was facing um, Death, who looked at me and said, will the rapture take place pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Rather, the individual has simply wanted assurance and encouragement about what it means 
when he or she passes away. It is thus about these pastoral matters, not prophetic ones, that Paul is writing. Give special attention to verse 18. He says, therefore, comfort one another. Comfort one another in what? Friends, comfort one another in the truth of the gospel. Looking out at this collection of people, I do not think it <laughs> irrelevant to say that we have faced loss, that we have suffered loss, that we have felt sorrow over someone who has preceded us in death. Yet Paul says, while the factuality and foreignness of death is a real thing and grief comes for all persons, it does not bear finality for the believer. Three times in verses 13 to 15, the apostle refers to believers who die as being asleep. The comparison of death to sleeping implies not only rest from this life's labor, but also a glorious awakening that we await. Paul, again, does not discuss the state of our sleeping. In other words, he does not discuss the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, that's not his purpose. He does say, however, in Philippians 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, we must know that in some way, after our passing, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. John Calvin, much smarter man than me, concludes that Paul's reference is not to the soul sleeping, but to the body, for the dead body rests in the tomb as on a bed until God raises the person up. I'm trying to, again, cause problems here. But what are we to do with Enoch? What are we to do with Elijah? They never tasted death. Where did their bodies go? What are we to do with the words of Jesus on the, on the cross to the thief beside him when he says, today you will be with me in paradise, knowing that Jesus would not ascend to the Father until after his resurrection? What are we to do with that? I don't know. And again, I, I just have to say that these are the kinds of questions that I do wrestle with. I am curious about. But Paul doesn't answer those for us. What Paul answers for us is that there is a way to comfort the grieving. And the way to comfort the grieving is the gospel. Verses 14 to 17 emphasize four R's that you can associate with the gospel. Reconciliation, resurrection, return, 
and relationship. Paul starts verse 14 saying, if we believe that Jesus died, reconciliation, and rose again, resurrection. Okay, Paul doesn't go into depth. He just says that Jesus died. But throughout his ministry, throughout um, his connection with his people, the one thing that you can say about Paul was that he preached Christ and Christ crucified. Nothing else. Second, 1 Corinthians 2.2 says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why was the cross Paul's primary focus in his preaching? Because you and I stand guilty in our sin before a holy God. And the only way that you and I can be reconciled to this holy God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. For everyone who believes, Paul says, our sin was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus paid it all. He bore the curse our sin merits so that we would have access back to the Father. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved, they simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nothing was added to it. It was faith in Christ and Christ alone. No one else, nothing else. Give me Jesus. There's no other means by which we shall be saved from the sting of death, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Have you believed? Have you trusted in Christ? I often tell a story at gravesides um, about a father who was driving with his two daughters on a country road with their windows down, slow, slow Sunday drive, when a bee flew into the car. And one of his daughters was deathly allergic to bee stings. And she began to shout out hysterically. And that father grabbed that bee and then he let it go out the window. You would think that the daughter would have been calmed, but she wasn't. She continued in her hysterics, and she cried out to her daddy, Why, daddy, knowing how allergic I am to bees, you would let that bee go? And so he pulled over on the side of the road, and he turned around to his little girl, and he held out his hand, and he said, You see that sting? That bee can't hurt anyone any longer. You see, Jesus bore the sting of our death, and it cannot hurt us any longer. Did you listen to the words that Chris read? 
death cannot sting the believer because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our victory. And it's because of reconciliation through the cross that believers shall experience the victory of resurrection too. Jesus did not stay dead. Charles Spurgeon says, on other people's graves is written, here lies so-and-so, but on Christ's tomb it is recorded, he is not here. Charles Swindoll tells the story about a young boy named Philip. And Philip was born with a number of physical illnesses. He wasn't expected to live long. And as eight years old, he began attending a Sunday school class with other children. Now, Philip was noticeably different. And the other children didn't know how to receive him. As a matter of fact, they kind of kept Philip off at a distance. As Easter approached one Sunday, the teacher wanted for the children to collect items around the church grounds to put into large plastic eggs that he had given them. He said, you know, just go and find an object, put in the large plastic egg, and then tell me why you put that something in the egg. And so all the children, you know, happily did that, and they came back into the Sunday school class, and the teacher then started opening the eggs, and each child would explain, that's my egg. That's why I put that in the egg. And he opened up one egg and there was nothing in it. And Philip pulled on the shirt of the teacher and said, that's my egg. And the other kids looked at Philip and said, Philip, you never do anything right. And Philip said, but I did do it right. My egg is empty because the tomb is empty. And the teacher said it was like a miracle happened in that moment. The other kids took Philip in and they set him free from the tomb of his differentness. Later that year, Philip died from an infection that most normal children would have just simply shrugged off. And at Philip's funeral, nine, I can just see it, nine eight-year-old children walked down to the altar and put beside his casket, not flowers, but an empty, large plastic egg. And that says it all, doesn't it? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. The tomb was empty. The gospel means that Jesus Christ reconciles his people. The gospel means that Christ's people will share in the power of Christ's resurrection. And the gospel also means that Christ will return for his people. With a shout, Christians will rise, and archangel will announce the second arrival of Jesus, just like angels had announced his first coming. And a trumpet will blast. Now, 
always curious as to what I find interesting, do you find interesting, but I want to give you two um, Old Testament analogies here to set the frame of reference as to what this is talking about. In the Old Testament, a trumpet is mentioned in connection with religious festivity. It's, it's listed in connection with triumph. So the trumpet will sound. In triumph, the dead in Christ will rise, first imperishable, then those who are still alive on the earth shall be caught up with the Lord in the clouds to meet him in the air. And then the reference to the cloud also has Old Testament connection. It is connected to the glory cloud of God. In Exodus 13, 21, we read about God's presence in a cloud during the Hebrew exodus from slavery. And God's glory then appears again by a cloud at Mount Sinai. Then again, God's glory appears through a cloud when his presence fills the tabernacle. His glory appears yet again in a cloud during the wilderness wanderings. And then the glory of God appears once again in a cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus. And so the reference to Jesus coming out on the clouds establishes the fullness of his glory as God. Only Christ leads his people on a far greater exodus. Only Christ leads his people into a far better land of promise. And what Paul ultimately wants to stress is that if we have believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that at his return, we shall always be with the Lord. That preposition is mightily important. With the Lord. You see, many of you, you don't say it out loud to me, but I know you think it. How in the world did that woman marry that man? But the truth of the matter is, is that when people ask me who I'm with, I am so very proud and honored to say that I am with her. It is a relationship that nothing can break. Maybe my stupidity, but nothing can, can break. And that is the essence of what Paul is speaking of here. The ultimate focus in the verse with the Lord, it's not about the timing of a rapture. It's about a relationship. It's about who we are with. And so while I cannot answer a great number of questions about death and eternity, what I can answer with clarity, with certainty, what I can say for sure today is that if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be with him. Just before his death on March 2nd of 1791, 
the Methodist minister John Wesley opened his eyes and exclaimed in a loud voice, the best of all is God is with us. And then he died. If we embrace the gospel that Jesus died for my sin, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that Jesus is coming again. If we embrace the truth of the gospel, the best of all is that we will be with the Lord. Let us comfort one another in that truth. This morning, I bring to you good news. We shall behold him. We shall behold him. And we will be with the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, um, yes, we have questions. Yes, we wrestle with various thoughts. But I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would press upon each heart of each person sitting in this congregation that if we have received the good news of the gospel, then we will be with you forevermore. And that is the only question really we need answering. Help us today, I pray, to respond as you call us to. And so, Lord, as we sing this, this last song together, if there's a decision that needs to be made, we just pray, Lord, that it would be made today. For your glory, Christ, we pray. Amen.